0: Nomai Hide Mai and welcome to the 2024 Litigation Forecast Podcast Series. Where our Litigation and Dispute Resolution Team shares its predictions and recommendations for business in the year ahead, brought to you by Minter Ellison Rudd Watts. June Hadeka Aho, I am your host and a partner in our employment and dispute resolution team. Today I am joined by my incredible colleagues Bryony Davies, partner, and Mark Calderwood, senior associate, in our Māori Legal, Public Law and Dispute Resolution teams. In today's podcast we will be discussing the recognition of Tekanga Māori by New Zealand courts. Before we begin, please note that nothing we are discussing today is legal advice and all information in this podcast is correct as at the date of recording, which is 12 February 2024. A good starting point might be to ask, what is te kanga Māori?
1: Uh, tēnā koutou, kia ora tātou no maira, haere mai kītene podcast. Uh, sorry, I do not know the kūpa Māori for podcast, but I'm sure there is one. Uh, and thanks for that opening question. It's a big one and I will start by saying that I am absolutely not a tikanga expert um, and I think Mark would probably say the same thing. Right. First of all, while I have whakapapa, both Māori and uh, Pākehā or Tangata Te would be um, more accurate and I, I have whānau from in and, and from England. I did not grow up around uh, my Māori culture or customs and norms and so much of knowing what tikanga is about is from lived experience uh, and knowledge passed down from generation to generation. So I'm not an expert at all in, in this, but the good news for us is that there are many people who are experts, rangatira and Māoridom, who have shared their knowledge, their mātauranga um, over the years, and there are many ways now of gaining an understanding of what tikanga and tikanga principles are today. So uh, so it's much more accessible now um, than perhaps it has been in the past. So with that introduction to answer your question, June, tikanga has been described by rangatira such as Ta Hirini Mead as the Māori common law, which I guess um, is, is a good way of Um, those of us who are used to the Pākehā common law system to think about it as a system of norms and the term Tika means to be right. So tikanga Māori means the right Māori way of doing things. And you can see how tikanga Māori could therefore be thought of as a a system that is a bit like the common law. Traditionally, tikanga Māori has really governed all aspects of relationships Māori have with each other and with the the whenua or the land and with te or the environment. Many of our listeners will be aware of a number of tikanga principles now, because it's becoming much more commonplace um, in, in everyday life in Aotearoa New Zealand through interactions, you know, in, in, in all sorts of areas of life now. Uh, for example, many people will be familiar with concepts such as manaakitanga, which is which is a a way of taking care of of one another and showing hospitality or Kotahitanga, which is about unity, and that's something that was talked about quite a lot in the recent Waitangi Day celebrations and commemorations, where I think uh, we heard a lot about the coming together of so many Māori and Waitangi as a form of kotahi tanga. So that's part of tikanga. Uh, there are lots of other values and concepts as well. Mark, did you want to mention
2: a few? Yes, and kia um, ora to our listeners uh, Call Mark Cord with Wingoa. So a couple of other tikanga that listeners will no doubt have heard about or have read about. Rahui. So rahui uh, often means a, I guess, a, a preventing order or a prohibition from doing something. Uh, a recent example was after some storms in Tāmaki Makoto, Auckland. Arahui was placed over the Waitamata harbour from collecting uh, kaimwana by local iwi because of the pollution that had come through the stormwater system into the harbour. So that's a very practical example around where tikanga maori can be used to uh, to good effect in our modern day setting. Uh, another example would be kaitiaki. Uh, Or kaitiaki tanga. Kaitiaki, a person who is a kaitiaki, would be commonly referred to as a a guardian or a steward. That's a very common term in, in the now repealed Resource Management Act and is used to refer to the way in which certain resources or aspects of our environment are cared for and protected. And so that's a very common aspect of tikanga that listeners will no doubt be aware of.
1: There are some others that recent cases have. Um, some other tikanga principles, which recent cases have grappled with as well, um, which many of our listeners won't be as familiar with. And um, are concepts such as hara, where there's been perhaps some kind of offence and there's some imbalance in a relationship as a result. And then ea, uh, which is the state achieved when that imbalance is restored back to balance. So that's just touching on a few tikanga values and principles um there are many many more and in a really fabulous move i think from our law commission the the commission has recently put out a study paper hebutama which is just a huge resource for what tikanga is about and how we can engage with tikanga in a whole lot of different areas of life and of law so i would Thoroughly um, recommend anyone who's really interested in this area or needs to engage with it as part of their business or, or law to have a look at that study paper because, as I say, it's a wealth of expert evidence and and pulled together from a whole lot of different real experts in Kanga from around the country. So that's been um, a huge value to us, but also to, I'm sure it will be in all sorts of areas.
0: Brian and Mark, when those uh, Kanga that you have taken us through and and you've mentioned that these are merely a couple in in a much, much broader framework, it's not surprising that they have been considered and recognised in the context of, of litigation in Aotearoa. And very recently, we've uh, seen the role of tikanga in our Supreme Court uh, in the case of Mike Smith against seven major organisations in New Zealand. And can you both elaborate on the role of tikanga in our courts and what how we have seen it move through our legal system?
1: It might be perhaps easiest to start by. Just pausing and looking back to the really, um, I think, powerful and clear statement of um, the place of tikanga in in New Zealand law, kind of in modern New Zealand law, if you like, um, from the Ellis case from our Supreme Court uh, in 2021, Two. 2022, sorry, where the court was really clear that Uh, tikanga forms part of the common law of Aotearoa New Zealand and has and will be recognised in the development of the common law where relevant.
2: And that's a really important point. As you'll see in the most recent case law that's developed is the where relevant is becoming a more prominent part of the recognition of tikanga uh, in our legal system, particularly where statutory rights are very clear. The courts are somewhat reluctant to use tikanga uh, as a way of creating either a shield for a defendant or um, a, a method of of claim for a plaintiff, um, so yeah, I agree. It's a particularly striking comment from the Supreme Court. I think Brian the other particularly striking part of that judgment was where the court said that it must not exceed its function when engaging with tikanga, and must take care. I'm um, paraphrasing here, it must take care not to uh, seek to define tikanga, but must use it. Uh, in trying to resolve uh, disputes and use it as a as, as a part of the rich common law that we have in this country. Yeah,
1: that's right. and I mean that's that's really reflecting the fact that our uh, our judges and our um, general courts are not tikanga experts either any, any more than most of us um, who, who are engaging with the court on a on a day-to-day basis. So it's really important um, not to overstep. Our areas of knowledge, or the court to overstep its areas of expertise and knowledge as well. The other part, perhaps, to draw on from Alice is that there was a real emphasis on the appropriate method for ascertaining tikanga depending on the circumstances of the case at hand, and the and perhaps also the resources of the parties at hand, because that will be really different and different. Uh, types um, of litigation in different areas of dispute. So in some cases, there might be a need to engage with uh, tikanga experts, so tanga tikanga. In some cases, it'll be appropriate to draw on Waitangi Tribunal reports, in some cases, uh, texts, or perhaps things like the He Putama report. Uh, and it will really depend on the case Um, and and what's really being dealt with by the court in any particular circumstance where te kanga is regarded as potentially relevant to the dispute.
0: Mark, one question I have, which is the application of te kanga Māori to disputes uh, and whether, I guess, the scope of application and and whether it's limited to disputes between Māori and Māori or or does it extend to disputes between Māori and non-Māori?
2: Thanks, June. The application of tikanga Māori in in our legal system is not new. Um, It has happened for quite some time, but I think what's clear is there's been a marked increase in the amount of tikanga that we see coming through in judgments and used in argument. Um, The types of disputes where it does arise is broad, so it's not just, again, related to disputes between Māori or Māori organisations like post-settlement governance entities and the Crown. But it was also uh, arisen in a case Bryony mentioned, the Ellis case, uh, which was in a criminal context where Mr Ellis was himself Pākehā, and the court acknowledged that all of the complainants there were, to their knowledge, also Pākehā. So so there is a, a broad application. And, and what's noticeable more recently is that tikanga Māori has become infused in a wide range of private law contexts, so that uh, extends to matters involving applications for a possession order for a property, uh, is one example. Uh, recently, through to uh, an employment um, case, which, no doubt, June, you'll be familiar with, the Controller of Customs uh, decision around uh, terminating someone's employment, where tikanga was referenced in uh, the employment relationship um, policies and. And documents between that, that organization and the employee and then to the, the final case was the one you also referred to june which was around tort which is entirely a common law concept but we are seeing that tikanga has been raised as the basis of a claim in the smith and uh, Fonterra uh, supreme court case and that that is now going to be um, heard at full trial uh, in the high court so we'll see that that relationship will again further develop i guess the underlying point is That tikanga is uh, infusing its way uh, through the full gamut of our legal system uh, across a wide range of disputes, um, and can arise in in contexts where there are Māori involved and non-Māori involved. Uh, There is certainly no immediate exclusion that's been implied to date.
1: That's right, Mark. And I mean, I guess one way of thinking about it really is is just getting back to basics about what the common law is, and it's a it's a law in New Zealand that applies to everyone so there's no way of carving off bits of it to only apply to certain uh, people and when you think about the way that the common law evolves it um, it evolves over time and where there are gaps and or new circumstances that arise that's when the courts will look to other sources or similar cases or other values or principles to see we're relevant uh, if those other sources of law can help uh, resolve the dispute that's before them. So that's really the way that tikanga is coming into the common law system, or it's one of the ways. And so you can see there there's no reason why tikanga values and principles couldn't be relevant to any number of disputes, um, regardless of who the parties are or the context. And the the thing that we really wanted to draw out as we were thinking about this for the purposes of our 2024 litigation forecast was really the range of commercial disputes where tikanga has started to play a part, either because it's being raised in argument, it may or may not end up being in the judgment, or because it is featuring in the decision um, at hand, and that's well. That's always been the case to some extent. It, it's certainly becoming more and more evident. Whereas traditionally, you, or we'd, for some time, we've become familiar seeing con- tikanga concepts in areas of environmental law or um, perhaps family law, but kind of commercial or civil law is is certainly something that seems to be increasing, and and I expect will and continue to increase uh, as we move forward.
0: Mark, you you spoke about the infusion of Te Kanga Maori into our legal system and, and Brian you were essentially talking about this as part of our, our common law system. So perhaps it's it's um you know, for, forecasting ahead, which is what we're here to do today, around whether, you know, more claims to do with Te Kanga Maori are, you know, featuring in proceedings that are being filed that either by individuals, um, or, or organisations, or in you know responding to claims that have been filed. So, what what should litigants, I suppose, both in you know preparing a claim or responding to a claim, what do they need to be alive to with respect to te kanga Māori?
2: The starting point would be to to very clearly understand the nature of the claim that's before you, and you can see through a range of the recent cases that have come before the courts, it is one very clear on its face that the parties are, are arguing that tikanga is part of the matters at issue between them. So the controller of Customs case that I referred to, clearly the uh, employment relationship had tikanga infused in it and referred to in, in various documents. In Smith and Fonterra, that was part of the, the claim around the development of tort in relation to climate change. So there, there's a very good alert early on for parties to be aware of te potentially arising in the matters between them. And that might be a good signal from the outset to start thinking about that and taking steps to prepare, whether that is engaging experts or otherwise um, obtaining evidence that shows that those matters um, have been considered or that you can at least respond to them. The other recent uh, trend that we've seen is that uh, in places where there is a Māori claimant or there is, a, for example, a Māori trust involved or Māori land involved and uh, another statutory context Um, overlaid on it, such as applications for possession orders, uh, it seems more likely that there is going to be uh, arguments around tikanga Māori raised in those contexts, both uh, before the court, but it would also appear in the earlier attempts to resolve the dispute before it gets to court. So in those contexts as well, litigants and, and their lawyers should be aware of those matters before proceeding.
1: I guess the other thing to say in that regard, June, is if... Much, you know, much prior to any dispute and any litigation out of that. If in your uh, organisation you are engaging with tikanga in some way, whether you're incorporating tikanga principles into your strategy or into your policies or into your trust documents, wherever that is, then then they're going to be relevant to the sorts of standards that your organisation is held to in various situations, and so. It's much more likely where you've made a positive commitment to tikanga that you will then need to think about that where there are disputes and in, in areas where you've already made a positive commitment to, to acting in, in tikanga uh, consistent ways, and that's the sort of thing we've seen recently in a few different areas. One is the employment context where, where um, Mark's referred to the customs case where there, you know, where there was a a positive commitment in policies around tikanga. Now that case, you know, some could say, well, there's also the, the public sector overlay there where it's incorporated through statute. So it's not just a voluntary adoption of uh, incorporating tikanga principles through contract or uh, or policies, but we have equally seen that in private organisations where uh, there's no public sector overlay and statute overlay to incorporating tikanga. So where it's just come through, only through policies or only through contracts, where we, we, organisations are then you know, being held to account by their people or by people they're in dispute with to what they've said they will do in relation to acting in a tikanga in a
2: consistent way. Those actions are, are often, I would have thought, well-intentioned to include reference to tikanga Māori in, in various documents, whether it be a trust deed or an employment type setting. I guess the key thing is that if you are to do that and voluntarily take those obligations on is to to be very clear about what it is that those obligations mean, what you need to do to ensure that you're acting consistently with them. And those steps will be very important for avoiding matters going to dispute. But even if they do go to dispute, that you can actually say we've taken the the correct steps A, B and C to uh, discharge our relevant legal obligations here and acting consistently and
1: One final area just to touch upon June is just to note really that Tikanga principles have long been a feature in some areas of litigation. I think Mark mentioned that right at the start but some areas where that is the case is in the environmental law area but also in judicial review of government decision making where there are a lot of areas where tikanga is highly relevant to and regarded by the courts as a relevant consideration to decisions. And so the courts have been engaging with what those tikanga principles are and how they apply, and I think we will continue to do so in those, I guess you could say, traditional areas where it's been drawn upon uh, alongside the areas where it's really emerging uh, in the commercial and civil litigation space as well.
0: Brian e. and Mark, in the employment space where I play, and you, you've referred to the, the customs case, which um, is, a, is a recent statement in my jurisdiction on Tekunga principles, and it's not new to the employment framework, I, I, which is what we're, we've kind of been testing in the sense that it's always been about employment relationships since the 2000 Act anyway, and it's about kōrero, it's about good faith, it's about talking to each other, uh, but but in from your perspective, it, it, this is developing and it is evolving. So, to to wrap this um, to wrap this corridor up, what what is one key consideration uh, for for our listeners to take away from from this?
2: Thanks, Jen. That's a it's an interesting reflection on the difference in the employment jurisdiction compared to the sorts of uh, areas that we've been talking about. But perhaps that is the the key reflection is that this is breaking new ground, the use of tikanga Māori in commercial-type disputes that come before the courts in a wide range of settings. Tikanga may be relevant to resolving disputes where there are gaps in the law, be that statutory law or common law, but also where there are emerging uh, types of disputes or classes of disputes that uh, come between parties or before the courts. Yeah,
1: that's right. I mean, we really come back to that point around relevant, and, and it's becoming increasingly relevant in, in more and more areas of the law so that's really the key takeaway
0: brianie and mark thank you so much for your insights today it's been just extraordinarily interesting and and i know it'll be the same for many of our listeners so if you enjoyed today's episode please remember to rate review or follow mint allison rudbots wherever you get your podcasts you can subscribe to receive new episodes directly in your inbox via our website at mintallison.co.nz hi there